Well, let us continue in worship this morning as we open God's word to the book of Acts chapter 2. And if this is your first time here, my prayer is that this is what you will take home with you, is that we are about one thing and one thing only, and that is the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have nothing else to offer you but the Lord, the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verse 33 through 36. Listen to the reading of God's holy and sufficient inerrant word. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this day this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. If you have been following our study for the last several weeks, you might have noticed something peculiar about Peter's sermon. What is that? Well, if you have been paying attention, you might have noticed that even though this sermon is an explanation of the coming of, anybody know? The Spirit, even though it's an explanation of the coming of the Spirit during Pentecost, meaning even though this sermon is an explanation of the tongues of fire, the mighty rushing wind, and the disciples' ability to speak in foreign languages, most of the sermon is not about the Spirit himself, but about someone else. Did you notice that? Most of Peter's sermon has revolved around a different subject, and surprisingly, it has not been the Spirit. The sermon, for the most part, has been about Christ Jesus. But this might seem a bit confusing, let's be honest. If you're reading Acts chapter 2 for the first time, you might be tempted to think that around verse 22 of Acts 2, Peter forgets what the question was. What was the question? Well, it is the one found in verse 12. What does this mean? Referring to all those supernatural events. He starts the answer in verse 14. And it all makes sense until you get to verse 22. When you get to verse 22, it is as though Peter goes in a different direction or so it seems. But the truth is that Peter never forgets the question he's answering and the event he is explaining. Peter is very clear throughout his entire sermon. He hasn't lost sight of his purpose. Peter did not get lost in his own words. So yes, his sermon is about the coming of the Spirit, Pentecost. But Pentecost is primarily about who? Jesus Christ. Why? Here's the answer. Listen carefully. You cannot explain the work of the Spirit 
apart from understanding the glory of the Son. You cannot understand the work of the Spirit apart from understanding the glory of the Son. Jesus and the Spirit are distinct yet inseparable. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. However, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Yet we worship one God. Is that clear? We worship one God. Therefore, any explanation of the work of the Holy Spirit must, by necessity, lead us back to the work of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in a real sense, the Apostle Peter understood Pentecost as the historical fulfillment of the words of Jesus. When in John chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify who? Me. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. According to Peter, Pentecost is the historical outworking in time and space of these wonderful words of Jesus. Here, the Spirit comes to glorify Christ. It is the purpose of Pentecost. Therefore, it only makes sense that Peter's sermon is primarily about Jesus, for glorifying Jesus is the ministry of the Spirit. But there is something else that is truly as outstanding, astounding, that I must say before you stop listening, or before you get too distracted by the thought of a yummy lunch. Right in the middle, right in the middle, of this eternal, perfect, inseparable relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit is us, human beings, God's elect, the church. We are the direct beneficiaries of the eternal love of the Trinity. I challenge you this morning to try to come up with a greater, higher, and more life-altering truth than that. We are loved by the Trinity. We, human beings, we get to participate fully in the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How? Through Jesus of Nazareth, who sent the Holy Spirit. In light of what I just said, this is how I will approach our time together this morning. I will break down the passage into five main points, as you have it in your sermon notes. Each point will be in direct connection to the Lord Jesus. Embedded in each of these points, I will seek to draw the application for us. In other words, I will develop, develop each point and try to answer the question, so what? Now, consider our journey so far in Acts chapter 2. To explain Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, Peter started in the Old Testament with the prophecy of prophet who? Joel. Thank you. Who who was that? Oscar. All right. You get extra points. Regarding the coming of the Holy Spirit, which he spoke 800 years before the actual coming of the Spirit. From there, Peter took us to the cross in which our Lord Jesus, the man from Nazareth, was killed at the hands of lawless men. 
from the cross, Peter went straight into the tomb of Jesus in which the greatest miracle took place. Death lost its grip on Jesus. So the tomb was left empty. The very body of Jesus walked out of the grave. Jesus of Nazareth was raised to life. This morning, we have reached the summit, the very pinnacle of Peter's explanation in a somewhat literal sense, because now this morning, Peter is taking us all the way into the very presence of God. This morning, we are in the heavenly places. Here then is the full meaning of Pentecost. Number one, Pentecost announces the exaltation of Jesus. Please follow. Pentecost announces the exaltation of Jesus of Nazareth. The first part of verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Brothers and sisters, for just a few moments, I need you to imagine what the faces of those people listening to Peter looked like as they heard his words. Just a few months prior to these events, some of them had been clamoring for Herod and Pontius Pilate to have Jesus killed upon a cross. Just a few months earlier, many of those listening to Peter had been mocking Jesus and asking for his blood to be shed and his body to be nailed to a wooden post. But suddenly, the same people are confronted with very strange supernatural events. There are tongues of fire appearing, very strange, mighty rushing wind blowing through, and a group of Jewish men can now speak in foreign languages. People are perplexed. They are curious. They are confused, maybe even afraid. So they asked the disciples, what does all of this mean? What is going on? We have to come to the, we have come to the section in Peter's answer that likely sent a shock wave down their spines. And here it is. Are you ready? The original audience certainly was not ready for what Peter is about to say. It is as though Peter was saying, okay, so you want to know what all of this means? Well, then listen carefully. I'm paraphrasing. Men of Israel, listen to this. Men of Israel, the spirit of God has come because the throne of David is now occupied by a man. Oh, oh, by the way, you know who he is. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. The one you killed on that cross. Yes, that man from that town, Nazareth, the one you had killed has been exalted. At the right hand of God, he is the descendant of David. It should not come as a surprise then. What we read in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It is at this point in Peter's sermon that they began to realize the evil of the crime they had committed. 
They didn't have just any men killed on the cross by the Romans. They killed the very descendant of David. They, the one in whom God fulfilled the Davidic covenant. In an incredible act of providence and sovereignty, God used the evil of men to have his own incarnate son killed. But what the evil men did not know is that death was just the portal, the door through which this man from Nazareth would pass into unimaginable glory in the very presence of God and all as a human being. Do you realize Do you realize this, that right now, as we speak, as we speak, there is a human being, glorified human being in heaven, ruling over all things in heaven, in the presence of God, there is a man, Jesus of Nazareth, and he has authority over all the kingdoms of the world right now. Therefore, the point of Peter is as follows, the coming of the spirit which was accompanied by the supernatural events already described is the announcement that the seed of the woman promised in Genesis three and the descendant of David promised in second Samuel chapter seven has indeed ascended into heaven and that he has sat at the right hand of God. The King is on his throne. Why the right hand of God? First of all, God does not have a hand. God is a disembodied spirit. Second, then how can Peter say that Jesus sat at the right hand of God? Well, there are two primary reasons. In the first place, the hand of God is a metaphor for the power of God. This is why as Jesus stands before the council of the chief priests, just hours before his crucifixion, he was asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? To which Jesus responded, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. Jesus will sit at the right hand of power. As far as I know, power does not have a right hand. Then what does it mean? The right hand is a position of authority. Jesus, the man from Nazareth has been exalted in order to rule. The father has given him this exalted human being, all authority. But didn't the son of God already have all authority? Not as a man. Now, the son of God incarnate has all authority as the God man. Why is this important? Well, this leads us into the application point in your notes. The exaltation of Jesus means we have eternal hope. Brothers and sisters, you heard me a few weeks ago emphasize over and over again the humanity of our Lord Jesus. We heard Peter himself refer to Jesus as the man from Nazareth. This man, this Jesus of Nazareth is the one who ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. Amazingly then in the exaltation of Jesus of Nazareth, humanity itself has been exalted into the very presence of God. So let me connect the whole Bible. While the first Adam was thrown out of God's presence, bringing 
all his descendants down with him. The second Adam, meaning Jesus Christ, was exalted into God's presence, bringing all his children up with him. How did the Lord Jesus do that? The second Adam? He died for us. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. If you're using our pew Bibles, this is in page 1001. 1001. Christian, I want you to remember that Christ Jesus died in our place. Consider these words about Jesus. We're going to start in the second half of verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to how Hebrews describes the Lord Jesus. Now, it says in 8, second half, now in putting everything in subjection to him, meaning the father putting everything in subjection to the son, he left nothing outside of his control. Is there anything outside of the control of Jesus? No, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In other words, the suffering of Christ for our sins was also the pathway to the exaltation of Christ in order to bring us to glory with him. Consider Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Hebrews 9, 24, in which we read these marvelous words. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now remember, he did this as a man. Jesus entered heaven as a man. Why? Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. On our behalf. Here we see why it is imperative that we take serious note of the exaltation of Jesus as a human being. He was exalted to appear before God on our behalf because he was exalted as a human. As a human. It is only in the exalted Christ that we have eternal hope. And brothers and sisters, that hope is secured for those who are believers in Christ. All of this leads us to our next point of consideration. Pentecost displays, Pentecost displays the accomplishment of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I'm going to linger here a little longer. And then the last two points are going to be shorter. I'm just giving you hope. We are going to eat lunch at some point. But the second point is going to be the bulk of our discussion. Consider the second half of verse 33 of Acts 2. So the first thing we know is being therefore what? Exalted at the right hand of God. Verse, second half. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. We have to stop there. We need to make a few comments. What did Jesus receive as the exalted man? According to the second half of verse 33. I hear some whispering. 
What did he receive? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The promise. Two words. Jesus, the exalted Jesus in heaven, he received the promise. So based on those two words, received the promise, I have two questions. First, when did the father promise the Holy Spirit to the son? Well, the promise of the Holy Spirit was made, and this will surprise you, to the son in the promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17. Now, you're probably wondering, well, you have to prove that statement. And that's what I'm going to try to do. I want to take you straight into Paul's understanding of the Abrahamic promise. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. In the Pew Bibles, this is in page 973. Remember, we are answering the question, when did the Father promise the Holy Spirit to the Son? Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Consider the good news given to Abraham. And this is what we read at the end of verse 8. Peter, I'm sorry, Paul called this the good news. This is the good news that God spoke to Abraham. At the end of verse 8, Galatians 3. In you shall all the nations be blessed. What is that? That is the promise. How is that promise fulfilled? I'm glad you asked. Through Abraham's offspring. In Genesis 17, verse 7, God said to Abraham, and I will establish my covenant between you and me and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be to you and to your offspring, your God. Are you following? Back to Galatians chapter 3. Here is how the great apostle Paul understood and interpreted the Abrahamic promise. Listen to this Galatians 3:16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. Who is that? Christ to whom was the Abrahamic promise made to be a blessing to all the nations Christ to the offspring. Ultimately the Bible teaches that in Christ, listen to this. You can't miss this. You can't miss this. Don't fall asleep in Christ. The Abrahamic blessing has come. Do we agree? Good. So when the promise was made, when was the promise made to the son? Well, in a historical sense in the Abrahamic covenant, because this is how Paul understood it. Now don't leave Galatians. Here's my second question. Peter says that the exalted Christ received the promise of the Holy spirit. Why did Jesus need to be exalted in order to receive the Holy spirit? Here's the answer. Jesus had to die first. Jesus had to die first as a man in order to receive the promise of the spirit as the exalted God man. Follow the reading Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Notice the connection between the death of Jesus and the fulfillment of the blessing of Abraham. Christ redeemed us 
from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What is that? A reference to his death. So that, verse 14, so that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What is the blessing of Abraham? So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus, as a man, had to put himself under the curse first, meaning he had to die first, in order to receive the promise of the spirit as the exalted man in the presence of God. This means that in his death on the cross, Jesus accomplished the work of redemption. Now, are you following what I'm saying? Because I'm going I'm to get into an argument here that you need to listen to. What is the proof that Jesus accomplished his work on the cross? The father gave Jesus what he promised. What was the promise? The Holy Spirit. When did Jesus receive the Holy Spirit? The moment he was exalted as a man. Listen. Now, listen to this. Don't, don't lose me. Now, through the Spirit, the exalted Christ can grant the Abrahamic blessing to all the nations in the exalted Jesus, the Abrahamic blessing is fulfilled because the exalted Jesus can now, in the spirit, circumcise the heart. Are you following this? So, let me take this as an opportunity to explain as briefly as I can. And that's never a promise. I hope you know that. Briefly, is super hard to do when you're preaching. It's hard to understand, but it is a, the struggle is real. Okay? The struggle is real. So let me take this as an opportunity to briefly explain why <laughs> the exaltation of Jesus is precisely one of the primary reasons why I, as a Baptist, categorically reject the practice of infant baptism. It is a deeply theological Argument. You see, for our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, they say that the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision, what was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. Was uh, transferred into the new covenant, into the New Testament, as infant baptism. The problem is, infant baptism is a practice that is stuck in a covenant that has already been fulfilled in the exaltation of Christ. Please follow my argument. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was the circumcision of the flesh. Yes? Yes. This is yes. I hope this is not like I'm falling asleep. Now, the Abrahamic covenant, the sign of circumcision had two primary purposes. First, it was meant to set the people of Israel aside. You belong to me. You are my people. Second, circumcision of the flesh pointed to a dark reality, namely the need for the circumcision of the heart. This is why in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, the promise is made, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God. 
The circumcision of the flesh was meant to point to the need for a circumcised new, giving you a clue, heart, heart, brothers and sisters. This is precisely what was accomplished in the new covenant. Paul clearly said in Galatians 3 that Christ died so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, namely the Holy Spirit who is received by faith in the exaltation of Jesus as the Lord Jesus, the human Jesus sat at the right hand of the father. What was given to Jesus? The promised Holy Spirit. Now the exalted Christ has the authority as a man, as the head of the church to send the Holy Spirit into all the world to do what the Abrahamic covenant could not do. In and by the Holy Spirit, the exalted Jesus himself now offers a better, greater, and permanent circumcision. In and through the Spirit, Jesus fulfilled and is fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant since he he is now the one who circumcises the heart of all the members of his body, the church, by the ministry of the Spirit given to him. Therefore, it is clear That in the exaltation of Jesus, as he is given the promise of the Holy Spirit, he brings the Abrahamic covenant to an end. Because now, by the Spirit, Jesus built his own church and he sets them apart and he grants every single member of his body the real circumcision. The circumcision of the heart. Therefore, The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was not replaced by infant baptism. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was fulfilled in the exaltation of Christ as he has now the authority as the exalted Christ to mark his own people with the better sign, regeneration. Regeneration. Thus, We no longer need to have a mixed community in which some belong externally and others internally. Now in Christ and because of his exaltation and the giving of the spirit to him, all the members of Christ's body are given the circumcision of the heart by the indwelling of the spirit and are therefore full members of his covenant. I'm going to say this with much love and respect because I do love my Presbyterian brothers. I love them. I've learned so much from their theology and I highly respect them. But no man, no man has the authority to give anyone the sign of the new covenant. There's only one man who can do that. And he's exalted at the right hand of God. And he gives the true circumcision, the one of the heart. No man, no man can usurp the role that belongs only and exclusively to the Lord Jesus Christ to set you apart by removing the flesh and giving you a heart of flesh in the heart. So as we are baptized, as believers, what do we do? Well, we have the baptistry here is hidden, but is, is there. I promise you what happens. 
we enter the waters of baptism. We go under the water and we say to the world, look what Christ has done in me by the spirit. He has given me the sign of the covenant. I belong to him. He has given me a new heart. What is that? Regeneration. Thus, Paul says in Romans 2, 28, 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. Infant baptism is not a matter of the heart. It is not the new birth is here's the application point for you. If you're following along, the accomplishment of Jesus means we have been set apart by the spirit. Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was crucified and risen from the dead has been exalted and has been given the spirit because he now possesses the authority to mark his own people, no longer by a physical sign, not at all, but by the giving, by giving them a new circumcised heart, which is the glorious work of the helper, the Holy spirit promised and given to the exalted Christ. Turn to Philippians chapter three, verse three. You see, this is what takes long is when you guys have to turn in your Bibles has nothing to do with me. I'm just saying, well, it has a little bit to do with me, I guess. <laughs> you do your part, I do mine. Philippians chapter 3, listen to how Paul described true circumcision. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision. Well, what does that mean? Well, he explains it. Who worship by the Spirit, meaning we have him truly, and glory in Christ Jesus, we know him savingly, and put no confidence in what there is nothing in our lives to what we can point and say, this is where my confidence is. Nothing, only the work of Jesus. Later on, one of the things Paul equates to confidence in the flesh was the first thing he mentions, infant circumcision. Later on in the same chapter, Paul calls his circumcision, what? Scubalon. I'm not going to translate that for you. That's a Greek word. It's a very strong word. It's the word from which we get excrement. He called it rubbish. Why? Because he came to know Christ. And true circumcision is to know Christ. Christ by the spirit. Jesus of Nazareth, the man, the one who was exalted in the presence of God is worthy to receive the Abrahamic blessing of the spirit. And now he circumcises our hearts and what neither infant circumcision could do nor infant baptism can signify the exalted Jesus has done as he has received from the father, the promised Holy spirit who in turn comes and gives Christ's people a brand new heart, which is the true sign. So we'll stop right there with this argument. I will continue next Sunday. Uh, third, and we'll keep these short. Now Peter Pentecost, I'm sorry, demonstrates the love of Jesus of Nazareth. Peter, Dem I keep saying Peter, it's Pentecost. P 
Pentecost demonstrates the love of Jesus of Nazareth. The, sec- the third part of verse 33, he, meaning Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Here we are face to face with one of the most beautiful doctrines to ever enter the human heart. I will explain why this is the case by taking you to the words spoken by Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 18. Please turn there very quickly. John 14, verse 18, Pew Bibles, that's 901. Consider the words of Jesus in the context of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Our Lord told his disciples these life-transforming words. In the context of the Holy Spirit, explaining the role of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said this to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. In Pentecost, in the coming of the Spirit, we see the fulfillment of these words. It is Christ himself who in the Spirit comes to us. Notice that it is he, the exalted Jesus, the one who poured out the Spirit on his people. Brothers and sisters, we are never alone. In the Holy Spirit, we are one with Christ Jesus, our Lord which is the direct connection to the application point in your notes. The love of Jesus means we have spiritual union with him. Our union with Christ, my brothers and sisters, is not based on any external rights or any fleshly connections to family. It is the spirit, the one who unites us to the Lord Jesus. No spirit of Jesus, no union with Jesus. Jesus, the Lord, has willingly united himself to us. Jesus not only took human flesh, But now that he is exalted and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit through the Spirit himself, Jesus makes us partakers of his own eternal life. Now, I don't want to continue to do this over and over again, but this is the reason why infant baptism does not do justice to the glory of the new covenant in Christ. Why do I make that statement for this simple reason? Listen. It took the incarnation of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the sufferings of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and the very exaltation of Jesus for us to have the privilege of enjoying union and communion with the Lord, because only the crucified and exalted Jesus can give the spirit to his covenant people. We dare not We dare not diminish the glory of his work, his sacrifice, his exaltation, and the spirit's ministry by thinking that a mere external sign can actually do what only the spirit can, namely bring us into union with our covenant head, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you ask, why did the exalted Lord send the spirit? He did it so that we might be one with him by the spirit. Jesus loved his people. He loves us indeed. And finally, Pentecost reveals the victory of Jesus. Pentecost reveals the victory of Jesus. Verse 34 and 35, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When it says that David did not ascend into the heavens, Peter means the body of David did not ascend. David's body died and he experienced the normal process of decay. Therefore, Peter is simply emphasizing the fact that Jesus of Nazareth did ascend to the heavens in his body. 
Now, let me briefly enter into the divine conversation of Psalm 110, verse 1, which is the words that Peter quotes. David was given a, a window into a celestial interaction between God and the then future incarnate son, the word made flesh. In this conversation in Psalm 110, the son received a promise. Now, we can look from the New Testament perspective back into the Old Testament perspective, and now we know what that promise was. As the eternal son willingly takes on human flesh and places himself under the curse of sin, he obediently dies to rescue God's people. As a reward for his obedience, he is given victory over all his enemies. Now, Peter with the fuller revelation at his disposal in the New Testament, he opens that window and we walk in the house as it were. And now he explains the full meaning of that. The intra-Trinitarian conversation recorded by David in Psalm 110 verse one saw its historical fulfillment in the exaltation of the human Jesus. Since this is the case, brothers and sisters, I have news for you. I have news for you. Jesus, as the exalted man, has been, has been seated on the throne of David, and he has been defeating his enemies since his first coming. This is not a future occurrence. It is happening. It will be consummated in the final day when all of Christ's enemies are brought into final submission to him, but the exalted Jesus has been ruling ever since he ascended. Who are these enemies? I believe everything that opposes Jesus, whether human or demonic, all will be brought under his feet. And that, my friend, includes you. If this morning you are in unbelief, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will become his footstool. What is the application point? The victory of Jesus means we have nothing to fear. Jesus really is king of all things. Jesus truly is defeating his enemies. Therefore, the church will be victorious. From this truth, we understand why Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against what? Against what? Against his church. Christian, Jesus will keep you until the end and no human power, craftiness, philosophy, nor demonic attempts will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And finally... And this is for real, finally. Pentecost confirms the supremacy of Jesus of Nazareth. Pentecost confirms the supremacy of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 36 is the conclusion of all of this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Everything we have said until this point is summed up. In these words, Jesus is Lord, meaning he now rules as the God man over all creation. And that's what I said a few moments ago. Think about the amazing thought that there is a man in the heavenlies, exalted, glorified, who rules over all things. And Jesus is also Christ, meaning he is the rightful savior of his people as he sends the spirit and grants them new life. He is supreme. Now, it is true that even in his earthly ministry, Jesus was Lord and Christ already. In what sense then 
Is he Lord and Christ after the ascension? In this sense, Jesus now lives in the glory that has always belonged to him, no longer in humiliation. But now he does so as a glorified man. And as a man, he exercises dominion, conquers his enemies, and builds his church. What is the application point? The supremacy of Jesus means we have a clearly defined purpose. We, believers in the Lord, saved by his grace, circumcised in the heart by the Spirit, we live to please him both now and forevermore. Christian, this is your highest calling in life to live for the glory of the one who became a man to be exalted, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else about you is subservient to this one purpose. Jesus is Lord and Christ. Now my prayer as we finish is that the Lord will grant some of you, even if just a few, the eyes to see that even If in this world, you have all sorts of material wealth, social status, worldly comforts. If you don't have Christ, you don't have anything. But if today you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you come to him in repentance and faith. And you call on his name in Christ, you will have everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder. I pray that you will take my insufficiencies and that you will take this sermon and use it powerfully. For apart from the work of the Spirit, nothing can be done. So, Father, now we trust you that you will take the words that were spoken. And for those of us who belong to you, that you will help us to look further into the glory of Christ, to continue to consider him the exalted Christ Jesus, the God-man who now rules and who has us in his hands. And for those in this room who do not know Christ, open their eyes, Lord. Open their eyes that they may see that without Christ, there is no hope, but that in him we have our hope of eternal life. And these things we pray in his name. Amen.